I'm going to the book of Genesis. If you don't know where the book of Genesis is, you've got some problems. Discipleship is the place for you if you don't know where Genesis is. Genesis chapter 37. I am going to read a large portion of text in two places from the book of Genesis. And that's all right for some of you. It'll be the most scripture you've read in a year. Genesis chapter number 37, beginning in verse 5. The Bible says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaves. I don't know if I would tell anybody if I had a dream like that. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down before me. I kind of think Joseph is kind of shooting his mouth off when he should be keeping quiet right now. So he told this to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. Genesis chapter 45, verse number 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For there are still two years the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your life by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. One final scripture. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse number 2. Write the vision down and make it plain that he may run who reads it. Today in our series, Get Your Mojo Back, I want to talk to you about the subject of vision. And I want to talk to you about not just having a vision, but how to have that vision come to pass in your life. It's one thing for you to have a vision. It's another thing to see it come to pass. There's a lot of people who have sincere visions in their heart, but the graveyards are full of dead dreams that were never experienced. And part of the reason for that is that we don't understand there is a process by which vision comes to pass in our lives. So I want to minister to you on that process, and I'm calling this vision steps. Now, I'm not going to be able to get to all of them because there's nine of them, so I'm going to give you three This morning, I was able to get to two in the nine o'clock because they needed more of what I had to say. Last night, I got to all three. We'll see how the Lord leaves here. And then we'll pick it up again next time, but not next week because next week, I've convinced my beautiful bride to join me and we are going to miss, it's Valentine's weekend, and so we are going to minister to you on what it's like to keep love in your marriage for the long haul, all right? So you want to be here next week. 
I am putting a muzzle on her though. She is not allowed to share certain things, okay? Because if she exposes me too much, you will not want me to be your pastor. You'll be like, there's no way. He's a dead dog just like everybody else and so on and so forth. So we're going to let her share some stuff but not all the stuff, okay? But it's going to be a good time next week. But today, vision steps. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you, would you minister by your grace and power? Would you minister your word in a transformative way? We give you all the praise, and everybody said, you may be seated. Our first or our last scripture tells us that vision is essential to getting our mojo back. The way it puts it is it's essential to to running in life, to hitting our spiritual stride at God's speed. In life, there are a couple of different ways to move. You You can walk, you can stay still, you can go back, or you can run. When the scripture says so that we can run in life, it's talking about moving at God's speed through life. And a lot of times you and I are not moving at the speed of God because we are not walking in sync with God. And we're not walking in sync with God because we're not being led by the vision that God has for our life. Vision is absolutely essential in walking at the same speed, if you will, as God. Vision is so important that it empowers us in many ways. It gives us impetus. It gives us inspiration, determination, direction, clarification, motivation, and focus. Without focus in life, you really cannot succeed. A lot of people simply do not succeed because they shoot at a lot of different things. And when you're shooting at a lot of different things, you never do do anything well. You never get the cumulative effect of being focused on something that mounts up and produces the success that everybody wants and everybody dreams of. Vision gives us the ability to focus. Vision becomes a measuring stick that helps us to choose wisely and it forces us to ask important questions. Does the decision that I'm about to make aid or abet me in actualizing the vision that God has for me? Vision tells us what to do. It tells us what not to do, what to invest in and what to divest in, what to pursue and what to pass on, what we should say yes to, and more importantly, what we should say no to. There are two things in life, two answers that are important. Most of us know yes, but very little, very few of us know no. No is an important thing in our lives. Oftentimes you have to say no to good things so that you can achieve great things. You might have heard of the book from good to great. You might have heard of the expression, the good is the enemy of the great. How do you know what stuff you're supposed to say yes to? What stuff you're supposed to say no to? How do you know it's not arbitrary? How do you know it doesn't go by the whims of whatever is inside of, you know, your mind and your, you know, your, your ungodly passions? How do you know? You know by vision. Vision gives you that measuring stick. It gives you that ability to say yes and say no. Without vision, life can often be wasted. It becomes a a collection of aimless endeavors with little consequence or significance. One scripture says we perish with lack of vision. Another way of saying that, we waste our lives or the lives that God has given us without vision. Vision, therefore, is an indisputable, indispensable, irreplaceable life map and resource to help us get our mojo back. And because most people realize the importance of vision... 
lately people have tried to capture vision and it's been promoted and by some good things. Lately, you, you know, you see all these vision board meetings and gatherings that are, that are all over social media and everybody's getting together and they got their vision board. And I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to get, have a vision board. It's a good thing. But I, but I've found as I look over the vision boards of many people that they are a, a collection of the pictures that represents the lusts of their flesh rather than a life map for what God has for them. Because what they've done with vision boards and what a lot of people have done with vision boards is they just put up all their wishes on there. And, and most of people's vision boards look eerily similar. It's I want a big house and I want a nice car and I, and I want a healthy marriage and I want this and I want that and I want this. And all those things are fine and good. But that's not necessarily a vision board. That's a wish board. A vision is something different than just the things that we wish for in, in, in the lust and ungodly passions of our flesh. A vision, a true vision, is an inner picture that pulls you to fulfill God's plan for your life. A true vision is the ability to see something on the inside that pulls you toward experiencing that inner reality on the outside. It's not normal sight. It is the ability to see beyond where your natural eyes can look. It's an inner reality that causes you to experience an extraordinary resiliency. It's a picture that doesn't push you toward a particular end, but rather pulls you to the place that God has for you. And I'm using those words push and pull very on purpose. uh, A vision is an inner dream that leads you to the destiny that God has for you. Enter Joseph, because Joseph was a dreamer. Joseph's story is really all about vision. Maybe you know the story of Joseph. Maybe you don't know the story of Joseph for the sake of catching everybody up. Let me give you the cliff notes of the story of Joseph. Joseph was one son of 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob loved all his kids, but he loved Joseph the most because he was the son of his old age. He loves him so much that I like to say that he orders him this, this beautiful multicolor coat through Amazon Prime so Joseph will have it by Christmas morning. All the other kids get socks and underwear. Joseph wears the coat in such a way as to flaunt it in the face of his brothers as if to say, I'm the favorite of my father. And Joseph uh, is, 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 is not too smart when he originally begins to dream. As if flaunting his favoritism is not enough, he flaunts the dream that he has in the face of his brothers, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he has these sheaves, whatever they are, you know, bowing down before him. And so one morning, when they're having their breakfast, bagels and locks, because, you know, they're Jewish. That's funny. I don't care what you all say. Somebody like, oh, no, Pastor, you shouldn't say that. Listen, Italian people eat pasta. Jewish people, bagels and locks. Okay, it's fine. Anyway, they're eating their bagels and locks for breakfast one particular morning. Joseph says, listen, I had this dream, and I saw these sheaves, and you all were my brother's sheaves, and your brother's sheaves bowed down before my sheaves. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, he wakes up the next morning, the next breakfast, they're eating their potato lockers. It's another thing right there. As they're eating their potato lockers, he looks at his, his, his brothers and his mother and his father. He said, last night I dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars all bowed down before me. And the Bible says they hated him because of his dream. 
One day his father says to him, go out into the field. I want you to check on your brothers. And so he goes out into the field and of course they see him coming because he's got the coat of many colors on. And his brother, one brother looks at the other brother and says, let's kill him. Another brother says, no, we're not going to kill him. Let's throw him into a pit, strip his robe from him, dip it in blood, go back and tell our father that a wild animal has killed his son and will sell him into slavery. So they go back, they tell Jacob, Jacob frees, they front and everybody thinks that Joseph is dead. But off Joseph goes into Egypt. He's sold into slavery, and he winds up working for one of the most influential men in all of Egypt, a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar sees that everything that Joseph does, everything he sets his hand to prospers, so he puts Joseph in charge of everything he has. He says, whatever you do, I'm good with, because I know it'll work out. And so everything looks like it's going good for Joe. But all of a sudden, Mrs. P lies about Joe, gets Potiphar to turn against Joe. Potiphar throws Joe into prison, and so now Joe is in a prison being punished for something he didn't commit while in prison. The butler and the baker of Pharaoh from the castle come into prison at the same time that Joseph is there. They become boys. They're having this dream. And the dreams are just driving them crazy. So Joseph says, tell me your dream. So the butler tells Joseph the dream. And Joseph says, don't worry about it. Everything is good. Three days from now, you're going to be out of here. You're going to be back in the palace. The baker tells him the dream. Joseph says, not so good from now. Three days from now, you're going to be dead. Everything was exactly like Joseph said. And as the butler is leaving the prison on his way back to the palace, he sa- Joseph says to him, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me. Forgets about Joseph for two years. Suddenly, two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has this dream. He doesn't understand what it means. He calls all his magicians to him. All the magicians come to him. And he's like, tell me what it means. They're like, we don't know. The butler overhears it says, I know a guy that can interpret dreams. Pharaoh says, go get him. They call for Joseph in prison. They shine him and they shave him and he walks out of prison looking like an Egyptian. (laughs) He gets before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows. Joseph said, that, oh, that's easy. That means there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. During the seven years of plenty, what I need you to do is save all the food. During the seven years of, of, of leanness, everybody will come from all around to buy food from you and you'll be the Stu Leonard's of the world. And so sure enough, everything works out exactly the way that Joseph said. Pharaoh looks at him and says, you're no ordinary Joe. Takes off his ring, puts it on Joseph's finger. Joseph becomes second in command, most powerful, second most powerful man in all the land. Meanwhile, back home, Jacob and his boys are starving. Jacob says, I know where you need to go. You need to go see a man in Egypt. And he controls all the food. So the brothers go there. They stand before Joseph, except they don't know that it's Joseph because Joseph has got makeup on. He's dressed a different way and so on and so forth. And so Joseph fools with them a little bit. He puts some coins and some treasure in their bag, asks them about their brother Benjamin, pretends like he's going to kill Benjamin. Then he finally can't stand it. And so he reveals himself. The Bible actually says that he shows them his circumcision. For real, it's in the Bible. You know why? Because Egyptians didn't have to be circumcised. But Hebrews did. So even though he didn't look like them, he said, I'll prove it to you. Don't try that with anybody. Please don't try that at home. He shows them. All of a sudden, they fear for their lives. They're like, oh, no, he's going to get us back right now. And Joseph's like, don't be mad at yourself. It's okay. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. Everything is good. I forgive you. By the way, is my father still alive? They say, yeah. He said, go get him. He's got grandkids to meet. You've got nieces and nephews to meet. i got land to give you, houses to give you. We're going to have money to give you. I want to treat you right. He says, remember all of that dream? That dream was about this. God sent me here. All is good. You're good. We're good. God is good. I love it when a dream comes together. That's the cliff notes on Joseph. Now, 
One of the things you have to realize when you listen to the cliff notes is, is life is never about cliff notes. We give cliff note testimonies, right? We talk about the cliff note testimony goes like this. Yeah, uh, I was diagnosed with a sickness and, and, and praise the Lord, now I don't have it no more. Cliff notes, right? And we, we, we go right from when we got the report to right from when God delivered and we forget to tell everybody what was in between, and so people don't, don't, can't relate because they're like, well, it didn't happen like that for me. Cliff notes. Life is never about cliff notes. Vision is never about cliff notes. Vision is a process. It took 23 years from the time he got the dream to the time that he was in the palace living the dream. And, and so there's a process that you and I must go through, to, through in order to see vision come to pass. I call it vision steps. And there are nine of them. And like I said, I'm not going to be able to give them, give them all to you, but I want to begin with the first few. The first step in, in seeing the vision that God has given you is what I call the planting step. This is when God plants, when God puts in you the picture of what he has for you. When God puts in you the picture of what he has for you. Genesis chapter 37 verse number 5 says, Joseph dreamed a dream. And the implication here as you read the story is that, is that Joseph was just being Joseph. He was just going about. He was wearing his robe. He was enjoying the favor of his father. He was going about his business. He was, he was part of the family. He wasn't trying to have a dream. God planted this dream. Joseph woke up one morning and, and he had this dream he couldn't shake. And the dream seemed phenomenal. It seemed improbable, Im- impractical, and impossible. And, and it was something they just couldn't get rid of. And, and you know, and so, so he wound up telling it to his brothers. Every, everybody didn't understand the dream because oftentimes when God puts a vision in your heart, it is all of those things. It is impractical, improbable, and impossible. How is Joseph, who is one of the youngest, going to surpass all of the older ones to take a position of being in a leadership role in the family? In Bible times, that's not the way it worked. In Bible times, it was the oldest that was in charge. It was the oldest that got the double portion. It was the oldest. That got, but here we have one of the younger ones ones that is having dreams about surpassing everyone and not just having his brothers bow down before him but also his father and mother bow down before him and the point that I want you to see here is that this dream that is impossible improbable and impractical is a dream that God has planted in his heart because this is the way that vision works vision is not something that you think up on your own I'm talking about vision from God. We can come up with visions that are not from God. All of us have visions for our marriage and visions for our career. And we have visions for this and visions for that. And all those things are fine. But really, that's not the vision that I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on the vision that God has for your life. The vision that is a set of supernatural instructions, divinely implanted instructions that give you a a, a purpose, that move you, that pull you to the place of fulfilling God's plan for your life. And when that vision comes, you don't think of it on your own God puts it in you Joseph had a dream and this type of vision is so so powerful God puts it in our heart Psalm 37 verse number 4 is a scripture we're all familiar with but most of us are not familiar with it in its context we don't really understand what it means and rather what we use the scripture for is evidence or confirmation to us that God is going to fulfill our wish list in our lives Psalm 37 verse number 4 Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody ever hear that verse before? Anybody ever get excited about that verse before? Anybody ever read that verse and be like, I'm getting a mansion. I know I'm getting a mansion. I know I'm getting, I know I'm riding big. I know I'm living big. I have seven figure income. Here you come. By the way, nowadays you got to say seven figures, six figures. It's just, ah, it's all right. You know, it's not really that much. 
Let me say it again. I'm going to say it again just for you. Six figures ain't that much anymore. You need a little bit more. Anyway, we use that. And he shall give you the desires of, of your heart. But we don't realize that like every promise in the Bible, there is always a predication. With, with every... With every bu- Bible promise, there is always something that, that, that promise in some way is contingent upon. And so let's not deal with the promise for a moment. Let's deal with the predication for a moment because this is where most people never experience vision because they miss this part of it and they just jump to the last part because you know how it is in our day and age. Everybody wants something for free. Everybody wants instantaneous success. You know, the kids, I, I love all of our young people, and they're such a big part of our church, and I'm so grateful for their passion for God, you know. And, and that's a testament to Pastor Brandon and, and Miss Judy, who are leading our young people. We love them and the work that they're doing. But I've seen something about this generation. This generation wants, wants to live in a mansion from the day that they're married. This generation wants to get a salary equal to the CEO on the first day on the job. And I love the ambition of the generation, but, but we've, we've, we've lost something in the translation. We don't understand that there, there is something that precedes promises, that precedes the actualization of everything that we have. Put that verse back up, please. If you delight yourself in the Lord, what's that mean? It means for those that live and move and have their being in God. It means for those who God is not just a part of their life, but he is the all of their life. For those that don't try to fit God into their stuff, but rather try to fit their stuff into God. For those that realize that God is the source of every good thing that they have. For those whose lives revolve around Jesus, that it's all about Jesus, that he is the center of their life. For those that delight themselves in the Lord. This is for you. And so therefore, hardly nobody gets excited because now we just knocked out 95% of the listening audience. But you know what? You don't have to be knocked out because you can decide right now that that's the life that you're going to live. But for those that live that life, he shall give you the desires of your heart. And, And this is a bad translation or it's a translation that we read from our viewpoint And so since our viewpoint is, my name is Jimmy, I'll take all you gimme. We think that this means that God is waiting for instructions from us to to tick off our wish list. When in fact what this means is that when you delight yourself in the Lord, give, God will plant, better, better translation, plant the desires that you have in your heart. So what you begin to desire is not something that you came up with, but something that God put there because you delighted yourself in Him. And so, so what happens is true vision is not something you come up with on your own. True vision is something that as you're delighting in God, God puts on the inside. And so if you are a Christian delighting in God, and by the way, let me preface everything I said by telling you that our good, good Heavenly Father wants to give us all good things to freely enjoy. So God doesn't have a problem with any of the things that I said are on our vision boards, but that's not what vision really is. Vision is not about how do I acquire a house, how do I acquire a car. Vision is not about, matter of fact, if you're a Christian, can I just tell you something? That's all the byproduct of vision. And I've shared this with you before. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added on to you. If God said he'll just give it to me, I don't even have the game plan for it. 
And so what God does is he plants in you, he puts in you these passions and these desires. And the reason why God is planting in you these passions and these desires is because God is trying to pull you to a place where you are living out his plan for your life. And notice I've used the, the, the word pull very intentionally. I didn't say push you. Vision doesn't push you. Vision pulls you. And there's a big difference between the two because I don't know about you, but I don't like being pushed. You know, you ever you know get into it with somebody and you might be able to yell at one another, but if somebody pushes another person, then it's a, it's a game changer, ain't it? You watch them umpires, you know, or you know, sports players with the refs or coaches with the refs and they're arguing. If somebody bumps, uh-uh, it's on. Now, somebody's getting ejected, fisticuffs, benches are flying, everything's going on because nobody likes to be pushed. And we treat vision as though God is pushing us. One of the things you have to understand about God is God knows that the pull is stronger than the push. Because, because if you are always being pushed to do something, your want to never kicks in. And if your want to is not engaged in the process, you'll quit on what you're trying to accomplish. And so push is never as great, never as strong as pull. And so what God does is God plants in us something that has a pulling power, something that is compelling us from the inside because when you live life with a pulling power, it will pull you past all your quitting points. And here's the thing that you need to understand about vision and the accomplishment of vision and the attainment of goals. There will always be quitting points. Every single opportunity that you have to do something significant will be met with a challenge and, and the rubber will meet the roll. The rubber will meet the road when, whether or not you are able to push past your quitting points and the way you push past your quitting points is God pulls you with something that is on the inside of you that is really not from you, but it's something that you cannot shake no matter how hard you try. You try to move yourself in another direction and you find yourself coming back to the same thing over and over and over again. Here's the reason why. Because God will allow you to go around the same mountain for 40 years until you get it right because God's got a vision for your life. Just put it on the inside of you. The pulling power of vision. And, and I could give you story after story of how God has done this for me. He's so many times planted in me and, and God is funny because God will... God will plant stuff in you by punking you. God, God will trick you. Not in a bad sense of the word trick, right? Because whenever God gives you a vision, he always shows you like, you know, the good part. You know, he, he says to Abraham, look up. See them stars? That's how much your descendants are going to be. He didn't tell him he was going to go in and lay with his wife and his wife wasn't going to be able to conceive for a few years. He didn't tell him that Hagar was in the picture. He didn't tell him any of that kind of stuff. He just said, see that? Look, that's, that's how it's going to be. He said to Joseph, he said, look, look at all the sheaves bowing down before you. Ain't that cool? Don't you want to be in a position where everybody's bowing down to you? He said, not only the sheaves going to bow down to you, the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to bow down. He didn't tell Joseph about the pit. He didn't tell Joseph about the prison. He didn't tell him about being lied about. Or God will always, he will punk you, I promise you. Because God knows if he shows us, and I'm not going to, maybe I'll get this. If God shows us the price, most of us won't pay it. Because everybody wants something for free. 
And so what God does is he plants, plants. And he's done this for me so many times. One of the stories that I always like to share is, 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 is the story of this place. So years ago when we were at our, our old location in Danbury and we were, we were growing by leaps and bounds and we were at a parking. And from what I'm told, we're almost at a parking in this service right now, which is a problem. But that's why a lot of people are now coming to first service, which is good because it helps us. It saves us money because park costs a lot of money to put in. But if you just move your butt from one service to the next, then that don't save us no money. That don't save a lot of money. Anyway, we were in this old other facility, and we were out of parking and all that kind of stuff. And, and so we were going to do, what are we going to do? And then I get this phone call. It is forever, it's, the, it's the best phone call I've ever, see, ever received in my entire life. And, and there was this faithful family. They were there every Sunday, every Wednesday. They were, their kids were in the school. They were tithers. They years, just faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. And they called me up one Friday afternoon. They said, Pastor, I just won a $70 million lawsuit. Uh, he, he said, I know that your day off is Monday, but can I meet you for lunch on Monday? I'm going to bring you a $15 million check for the church. I was like, oh, should, I, should, I, uh, should I mess up my day off here? <laughs> so sure enough, that weekend I went home, and man, I started to dream big. I started to dream $15 million big. So I started to just dream about a place that would have a, a big piece of property, plenty of land for parking when we first move in and parking when we have to do it again. And I, I dreamed of a place that would have an auditorium large enough for all of our services. And I, I dreamed of a place where we'd have a, a stage where we could do Broadway-style musicals. And I dreamed of a place where our kids could go through, where they would enjoy going to church. And I dreamed of a kid's space that would look a little bit like Disneyland and a coffee shop that would serve nothing but Italian espresso. Don't, don't fool yourself. There's no better espresso. The, the Brazilians want to try to contend with the Italian espresso, and then you got the Colombians and stuff like this. Listen, Italian is the best. I dreamed of it. I dreamed of a school that was state-of-the-art. I dreamed of a gymnasium where the kids would be able to play, and I dreamed of the community coming in and enjoying the facility and all this kind of dreamed and dreamed and dreamed and dreamed. And, and matter of fact, the dream was getting so intense that I actually took out my little graph paper. Anybody ever do this? Take out your graph, and I drew the whole thing to scale. Yeah. And then I said, I, my, my plan was I'm going to give it to the architect. I'm going to get the $15 million check, and I'm going to bring the check and the paper to scale. I'm going to tell the ar- architect, just do that. Monday morning comes around, a couple of hours before the meeting. He said, Pastor, I'm sorry. My lawyer just called me, told me the money's delayed. It's been held up. He said, it'll be in by about Wednesday or so. Can we, have, can we have the meeting on Friday? And so that was cool with me. Again, just faithful family, never any reason to doubt them in any single way. And so what did I do the rest of the week? The dream got bigger. For the rest of the week, not only did I, did I have the dream sketched out, but now I started to walk in the building. I walked in the building. I walked up right up here, and I was preaching up here, and I saw people giving their life to Jesus. I saw people getting filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God moving in people's lives, and great things happened. I saw that. I saw myself sitting in the coffee shop drinking my Lavazza, my Italian espresso coffee. I just, I saw it, man. I saw myself beating Pastor Brandon on the basketball court by just shooting. So, I mean, I saw it. I was living it, dreaming it. Sure enough... Friday comes around. Pastor, sorry, got, got, got postponed again, hung up again. My lawyer assures me, though, that everything's all right. We'll set it up again for next week. And this went on for months. 
appointment cancellation, appointment cancellation, appointment cancellation. And during all those disappointments, God was just making the dream stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Finally, after about three months of disappointments, I, I said to the guy, I said, come on, man, I want to I talk. Because I never asked him no questions. People going to give you $15 million, don't ask no questions. Don't ask if they robbed the bank because they're going to give you $15 million. They're going to give you $15 million. It ain't your fault where they got it from, you know. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. I ain't asking no questions. So give me the check. So finally I asked. I said, where'd you get this money? He said, I, I sued the IRS. I won $70 million. My, my, my mouth dropped. I said, it ain't all over the news. How you get 70 million out of it? You can't even get 700 out of the IRS <laughs> without them fighting you on it, you know? You got 70 million. So long story short, we found out that it was a scam. And we found out that this is what the dude's game was. That he was going around to people in the church, promising them stuff. He said, oh, I see that your car's kind of raggedy. What you want? Don't worry about it. Pick whatever you want. It don't matter. I'm going to get it for you. I see that, you know, y'all have had an apartment. You've got a big family living in an apartment. I'm going to buy you a new house. He's going around telling everybody about these kind of things. And by the way, my last book that I write is going to be called, What Does Jerry Springer and the Church Have in Common? Because church people are crazy. <laughs> Straight up. Church, church people. Christians are crazier than worldly people. I'm just straight up tell you just like it is. And the reason why they're crazier is because they both do the, sadly both do the same kind of stuff. But the reason why the Christians are crazier is because they act like they don't do it. And that just makes them even more crazy. <laughs> that was funny. I don't care what y'all say. So they would go around telling people this. And, but then they'd always follow up and they say, they say, well, right now, you know, our credit's a little dinged up. And so uh, our car broke down, and, 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 and you know, we, we have to rent a car, and all we have is cash. And they would pull out the cash and give it to the person. Here's the cash in advance, but can you put your credit card down so that at least they'll, they'll give us the car? And then they would steal the credit card number from people, and they would run up all sorts of stuff on their credit cards. And so we found out about the scam. And, of course, I had to get up in front of the congregation, and I just told the congregation this. I said, look, if anybody asks you to borrow their credit card, say no. I didn't give them any details. And, and a lot, everybody wants details all the time, right? Like, and I don't know why. We, we always want details for all sorts of reasons. I think the most of the reason why we want details is because we're nosy. Because we want to be in everybody's business, right? And sometimes we have to understand that, that, that people who are tasked with the responsibility to lead, can't always give us every detail. Now, some details they should. They're appropriate based on the circumstance. But the fact of the matter is, I wasn't about to crucify these kids who were innocent just because their father made a bad mistake. See, as Christians, by the way, one of the things that we have to lead with in life is we shouldn't try to inflict unnecessary damage on people. Because anytime you're, you're, you're out to get somebody, can I tell you, hand in your Christian card. Because anytime you're out to get somebody, that means you have no idea about the mercy that God has given you. Zero, none. I'd be scared to try to get somebody. Because I'd be scared that stuff is going to boomerang back on me. Because I, can I just be honest? Because there's some stuff in my closet that y'all don't know about. And I don't, I don't want to mess with nobody enough to have them snooping in my closet. All of a sudden, bam, there it comes. And something that happened 20, 30 years ago, all of a sudden all the church is getting all up and I worry about it as if I was doing it yesterday. 
And so we just told the church. And, but then, then I, the realization set in. God, why would you do that? God said, I punked you. <laughs> I told you God would punk you. He said, here's, here's exactly what he said. He said, I use what the enemy meant for evil to plant a vision on the inside of you. And every time that, that looked like it was going in a bad direction, I just let it get stronger and let it get stronger and let it get stronger and let it get stronger until I knew that the vision was planted on the inside of you, Till I knew that the vision had pulling power. And once I knew that it was planted and it had pulling power, I pulled back the, the veil on what was really happening. But here's what God said to me. He said, but now that you got the vision, I'll bring it to pass. Here's what you need to understand. God wants to plant a vision and you are living in the vision. You're, you're you're sitting in the vision right now. You're playing in the vision. You're, you're drinking cappuccino in the vision because God planted it there and God will put a vision on the inside of you so you can begin to walk out his plan for your life and God will get it there through any means that he has to because those are your divine instructions for how to fulfill the plan that God has for you. The planting phase. The second part of it is what I call the processing phase, the processing phase. And then the processing phase, this is the stage where we must decide to say yes. And when I say yes, I mean more than consent to it. I mean commit to it. And you do understand that there's a big difference between consent and commit. When you just consent to things, it'll never take you as far as when you commit to things. Consensual things will never leave you as satisfied as things that you commit to. And and young people need to hear this because young people think it's all about consensual stuff rather than committed stuff. And so what young people do is they consent to live together and they think that's perfectly okay because ain't nobody hurting nobody. Because we, we both consented. But there's a problem with concession. There's a problem with consenting to something. And that there's always a back door. There's always a way out. And so when all you've done is consent to something, you're not fully there. And when you experience certain types of issues, you determine whether or not it's worth paying the price to stick it out. And oftentimes, because all you did was consent, what you do is you wind up leaving the situation. And that's fine in some cases, because if you were just consenting with somebody else, you might want to leave that situation. But there's a whole different thing between consenting and committing. Because when you are committed to something, what happens is, especially when you are committed to the things of God, what it does is it gives you the impetus to want to be pulled through the problems so that you can experience the ultimate prize. When my wife and I talk to you uh, next week, we'll talk to you about the times that it was our commitment that pulled us through some of the problems so that we can land in the place where we've been married for 26 years and I wouldn't rather be married to anybody else. But there were times where she got on my last nerve. And when God asks us, after he plants in us, to process, God is asking us not to consent. He's asking us to commit. He's asking us to go all in. He's asking us not to have a parachute, not to have an escape plan. Because I'm telling you, if you don't make that decision in your mind, 
first opportunity for you to fall away, you will fall away. Commitment. And we process in a couple of different ways. We process, number one, and most importantly, or we should, through prayer. God, am I hearing from you? God, is this of you? God, did you put this desire in me? God, it seems strange. It seems difficult. It seems challenging. Where did this come from? Where did this passion come from? Because, by the way, if you delight in the wrong things, you will have wrong passions. That's why it says, delight yourself in the Lord. Because if, if you delight in stuff that, that isn't godly, you'll have passions for those ungodly things. And then here's what the devil will say on you. Well, I, if, if you don't think this is really what you're supposed to go after or the way that you're supposed to be, how do you, how do you escape the fact that you're passionate about it? Just because something feels right, just because something you are compelled to do something doesn't mean it is right. Where'd the passion come from? What, what placed it inside of you? And so prayer helps you to process whether those passions are really from God. Prayer allows you to, 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 to divide where stuff is coming from. Is this coming from the pizza that I ate late at night? Is this coming from the conversation that I just had? Is this coming from the movie that I just watched? Is this coming from the, from the environment that I'm in? Or is this coming because God has planted this on the inside of me? Prayer gives you the ability to be wise about your passion. Prayer makes you smart. Look at your neighbor and say, you, you need to pray more. <laughs> we need to pray. Prayer helps us to navigate past problems that are unnecessary. What happens in most of our, by the way, you'll always have problems, whether you're in the will of God or out of the will of God. Somebody said, then why should I be in the will of God? Because when you're in the will of God and you got a problem, you know that God has already provided for you to overcome that problem. But you'll always have problems, but there are some problems that you sign up for because you, we, we sign up for simply because we are not lining up we sign up because we don't line up. I'm a poet. I don't even know it. We, we sign up because we don't line up with what God tells us to do. And so prayer helps us to navigate through those unnecessary problems. It helps us to, to determine whether the passions are planted there by God or whether they've come in from some other means. And the scripture tells us to please pray, not about some things, but everything. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. How do I know when I pray whether it's God or not? The presence or absence of peace. One version says, let peace be the umpire of your heart. Let me talk to you about peace for just a minute. There's peace in your heart, and then there's created peace from your mind. In other words, always go by your heart over your head. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. He doesn't live in your head. Your head is screwed up. Look at your neighbor and say, your, your head's screwed up. That's why the Bible says you've got to renew your mind. 
because your head is screwed up. You can't always trust your head. But as a Christian, if, if you are delighting yourself in the Lord, let me say it again. But as a Christian, if, 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 can I get a beat? If, 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 if. You are delighting yourself in God, then you can trust your heart. Because that's where God is speaking. And many times what happens is we create peace by overruling what God is leading us in our heart by talking ourselves either out of it or into it in our head. We reason it. Oh, but, but they said they're a Christian. Just because somebody says they're a Christian don't mean nothing. You'll know them how? 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 Fruits. Not their words, fruits. It's a good thing if they don't say they're a Christian, they're definitely not, by the way. Because some people go the other way. Well, they look like a Christian. They act like a Christian. They're better than the people that say it, but they're not a Christian because they didn't say they were a Christian. You need to have both a confession and a lifestyle, both together, not either or, not and or, but together, right? And so what happens is prayer allows us to, to process these, these passions and to, to trust our heart, and our heart signifies whether it's God or not by the peace or absence of peace that we have in our heart. And here's the thing. Can I just tell you this? Trust your instincts when you delight yourself in the Lord. I was just telling my wife this the other day. So it's amazing how, I, what I've started to do is when I instinctually feel something, I tell my wife about it. Like just about something that God wants to do. I go on record. And the reason why I do that is it helps me to trust my instincts. And it's amazing how my instincts are right, even when I try sometimes, like you, to reason myself out of those things. And so prayer helps us to process, and we listen to the response of peace that we have on the inside. But the second way that we process, and I'm not going to have time to get to number three today, I'm sorry. The second way that we process is we process through people. Now, oftentimes, this is the primary way that we process to the detriment of the vision that God has given us. Oftentimes we skip the prayer and we go to the people because it's easier to get feedback from people than it is to get feedback in prayer. Because when you go to people, you get an instantaneous response, whether it be verbal or nonverbal. But when you go to prayer, you got to sit quiet enough. You, when, when you're in prayer, you got to listen. And what I've learned about a lot of us is we're not good listeners. A lot of us a lot of us really believe we're the smartest one in the room all the time. For me, it's true. But, but for... <laughs> and so we, we love hearing ourselves talk. But prayer requires us to listen. And so we skip prayer a lot because we try it. We don't get the response that we want. We're not, we can't figure out God. By the way, the more you exercise yourself in godliness, the more godliness works. So the more you delight yourself in God, the more you will know the decisions that God is on the side of. But if you only are an you know, occasional practicer of the things of God, it will be more difficult for you to hear the voice of God. And so what happens is because of the challenge of getting a response in prayer, we often skip prayer and we go right to people. And can I tell you, people is a good thing. Everybody wants what they feel God is telling them to do to be affirmed, right? And everybody wants it to be affirmed by the people who are closest to them. 
And so it's very natural and it's very good for us to go to the people that are closest to us and tell them about what we feel God is saying. Now, by the way, if God is saying that somehow you're going to rule over them, don't tell them. Find somebody else. Could you imagine if Joseph's brothers were like, oh, yeah, just what I was thinking. No. And so we go to people and we, we look for affirmation from people. And by the way, Joseph goes to the right place to get affirmation. He goes to his family. We'll talk about this maybe a little bit next week. But do you know the place that affirmation is supposed to be garnered is within the family. It's one of the reasons why God designed the family. It's the place of affirmation. And oftentimes the right kind of affirmation is not given within the family. And so when the right type of affirmation is not given within the family, kids begin to go to all the wrong places to get the affirmation that they should have gotten the family. And it's not because society is broken, it's because the family is broken. Because if the family ever got hold, you see how quick society cleaned up. Because most of what is in societies is the failure of family. I'm preaching real good right now. And so we go to our families for affirmation, which we should do. That should be a safe place for us to go for affirmation. But by the way, sometimes if we don't receive affirmation from our family, it's not because they didn't do what they were supposed to. Because families are not only for affirmation. Families are also for confrontation. Families are not always supposed to affirm. Sometimes they're supposed to annul. Sometimes they're supposed to squash a situation before there's a problem. And the problem with our culture and our society is we are teaching our young people that anything that is not affirmation is wrong. And so if we don't tell people that they're right about a choice, a selection, a decision a passion that we somehow not affirming them and then you go to the people with PhDs I call them post hole diggers right now because the people with PhDs are sometimes stupider and you go to them and you say you know my, my kid's doing wrong and I'm trying to tell my kid they're doing wrong you just need to affirm them now there's a way to tell people that they're wrong without crushing their spirit, right? But to try to affirm something that is wrong is so detrimental to somebody, it is not helpful to them. So in the family, we ought to get affirmation, but we also ought to get annulment because if we get annulment at the right time, what we find out happens is we prevent problems in the future. And so Joseph goes to the right place to get affirmation. The scripture teaches us emphatically that in a multitude of counselors there's wisdom, right? So we should go to the right kinds of people to get input into what we feel God is telling us because the fact of the matter is excitement creates blindness. So you've heard the expression, love is blind. Can I just, pretty and handsome don't last forever. It's a cover-up. Eventually, you can't put enough makeup on to make that look good anymore. <laughs> That's the way it is, right? Eventually, all that wears away. And so because love is blind, because excitement creates blindness, we need impartial people in order to speak to a situation. But an impartial person is a hard person to find. 
is a hard person to find because oftentimes people process through their own paradigms. And so you have to find people who there's a couple of things you can look for. Number one, find somebody who is spiritually mature. Somebody who is spiritually mature is not somebody who just says they follow the Bible, but somebody who shows by their fruit that they follow the Bible. Find somebody who loves you without agenda. Agenda creates all sorts of unproductive advice in a situation. And it's not always somebody with an evil agenda. It's just somebody with a different agenda. Most people process everything through the first thing. And the first thing is, what is this going to cost me? Even the people who are listening are always listening because people are selfish by nature, except if you've given your life to God, then that nature ought to change. And that's why Christians are called to be givers. Look how quiet it got right there. Because our nature has changed. But what happens with people all the time, even when you're giving them, uh, asking them for help, they're processing like, does this impact me? And so they're going to give you feedback first based upon how it's going to impact them. And so just example, I love my staff very much. I would never ask them to do this. This is not something that I'm planning. But if I went to my staff knowing that we have a Saturday night service and two Sunday morning services and then said to them, in addition to that, I want to add two more Sunday evening services, four and six o'clock, I can bet you without even praying about that they say God doesn't want us to do that because the question they'll be addressing is how is this going to affect me right and so you have to be careful when you process through people listen carefully to this when you process through people you have to process the people that you're processing through through the process of prayer so you have to take what they are giving you and then you have to go back to God and process what they said through prayer. And by the way, when you become somebody who is good at giving advice, you will encourage that. You'll tell people, don't just take it for what I said. Go back and check it with the Lord and see if it bears witness with you. But when you go back and check it with the Lord, make sure, make sure you're not checking them against your wants because they said something you don't like because they may be trying to annul something that you shouldn't be doing and you're just only going to listen to the people who are affirming the things that you shouldn't be doing how do you know that you are only looking for affirmation and don't have a heart for God to hear God you will constantly keep going to more and more people when you've heard the same and same same advice over and over again that you know is the right advice but not what you want to hear if you've got to get 20 people, get to 20 people before you can find one person that agrees with you there's a problem with what you're hearing. Because I'm not going to point three, I'm, I'm elaborating a little bit on this. People, we should process. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. But be careful who you get to weigh in to a particular situation. Joseph went to the right place, but he didn't get the right answer from the right place. They tried to dissuade him from his dream. And herein we find the first vision villain. There's actually, we actually talked about one, but I didn't bring it out. First vision vil- villain is actually time. Can you commit long enough to experience the vision that God has for you? That's the first vision killer. The enemy knows if he can delay it long enough, he can get it denied, not because God pulls back, but because we quit. Second vision villain that we all face in life is the vision villain of people. 
Because not everybody that comes into your life is sent into your life in order to help you on your journey toward your vision. The same way that God will use godly people to confirm your vision, Satan will use other types of people to crush your vision. And, and, and you have to understand when these people come in to crush your vision that one of the things you can't do when you're facing the vision villains, because vision villains work in different ways. One of the ways they work is, is they crush your vision by their words. So if you don't receive the right affirmation, what you do is you give up on it, and that's, that's easy. But the second way that they do it is they don't just crush your words, but they cause you to get bitter. And so because they didn't tell you what you wanted to hear, you, you, you carry an offense toward them even if they were wrong and that offense blocks your vision because nothing will block you from experiencing your vision more than bitterness that's in your heart. And the reason why you can't get bitter is because you have to understand that oftentimes it's not about you as a person, but it's about the dream that you carry. They hated Joseph. Why? Because of his dream. And so when you realize that you really truly do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. When somebody comes along and you're tempted to be bitter, you can release that because in the end you're going to realize that even the people that came into your life to be bitter, God used to make you better. One of the things that you'll realize is even the people who were sent by the enemy were part of the process. That actually God will use the people who came in with the wrong agenda to push you further down the line and to position you for the place that he ultimately has for you. But that's for next week when we'll talk about that. I want you just to realize, don't get bitter when the vision villain of people come into your life. Process the right way. One of the things that you'll realize is that even when people come into your life in order to crush your vision, if it truly is a vision from God, God will see to it that the vision sticks. Because when Joseph told his brothers about the first dream and they didn't affirm him but try to crush it what did God do God said oh yeah dream number one was sheaves dream number two I got the sun moon and stars bowing down before you they came to steal your vision but this is my vision so I'm going to make it stronger because when God gives you a vision there really is nothing that the enemy can do that can steal your vision because God will stay with you until you get your vision your vision has power tremendous power to take you to the ultimate place that God has for you. And so I'm asking you, what, what has God planted in your heart? What is it that, that people, that time has stolen away from you? I like the fact that Abraham was old when he saw his vision come to pass. That's for all you old people. He was in his 90s, 99. Anybody in here 99? There you go. Still hope for you. He was old. David was young when he saw his vision come to pass. See, the one thing you got to realize about God is if God's called you to do something, he's called you to do it. It doesn't really matter whether you're young. It doesn't really matter whether you're old. What matters is that you stick with the vision. Would you stand to your feet?